Music Publishing Podcast, Episode 10. This is the Music Publishing Podcast with your host, Dennis Tobensky. Join Dennis in his weekly nuts and bolts conversations with composers, performers, and other arts professionals as they navigate their careers as concert musicians in the 21st century. And now your host, Dennis Tobensky. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Dennis Stabensky. I'm trying something a little new this this week, uh, not doing the pre-recorded intro, so all that information is going to go here, um, and that was actually just it. So uh, I'm joined this week by uh, Dominic Diorio, a com- conductor and composer. Did I say your last name right? Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Um, so so Dominic, um, oh, one thing I want to add uh, before we really get going. For anybody who decides to watch live, or if you think you want, might want to watch live in the future, there is a Q&A function in, uh, in the, uh, in, not Yahoo, <laughs> the other thing is YouTube and on Google+, so you can, if you have questions for, for guests, uh, feel free to, to ask those. Um, so Don, Dominic, thanks for being on the show, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and, um, and, and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dennis. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I currently work at Indiana University Dayton School of Music. I completed my fourth year there on the conducting faculty, and I direct Notice, which is an in-timber choir of uh, highly skilled vocalists mm-hmm. um, from different musical backgrounds composers, conductors, uh, primarily voice majors, mm-hmm. um, pianists, guitarists, and the like. And the 26 or so singers, uh, we present mainly new music uh, written for uh, a cappella or sometimes with instruments in the And many of the works we perform are by faculty at IU and, of course, other emerging and emerged uh, composers <laughs> in the profession. Nice. On top of that, I'm also a composer myself. Yes. Uh, I've written quite a bit of vocal music, especially choral music, mm-hmm. um, which I uh, also work with. You know, a lot of what I do is sort of changing the level. I see myself as someone who's helping to change the level of vocal artistry, whether that is an ensemble um, as a conductor leading singers or whether as a composer writing for. Um, yeah, I was just look just on your website like twenty minutes ago, checking out. You have a quite a substantial catalog, especially especially yeah the the, the choral music. But um, you have a lot of stuff, and I think uh, I might have to check out. I see you have a couple of vocal works that might fit my range. I might have to. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to check those out. Uh, yeah, I this summer alone I'm writing six new pieces. Nice. On commission, so I've been. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you, you just uh, finished up a commission last week, right? I did. I finished three in the last month, and another one in August 1st. Oh, wow. Three more in September 1st. That's, uh, that's cool. Uh, what, 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 did, what, what was it that you finished last week? Let's see, I just finished the one for the University of Michigan Men's Club. Oh, um, nice. Rogers. You uh, see there, that was a collaboration with a moving poet, Megan Labad. Oh, cool. I hope all um, and that was based upon uh, the story in Flint, Michigan. You may have heard about the water crisis. Yeah. So Megan created a new poem based upon that uh, particular, um, I would say, travesty. Mm. Um, and we wanted to write a work that was not necessarily political, but mm. powerful, mm-hmm. uh, and that gave voice to the community there. And so that's that's what I was working on. Yeah, that's happy to remember that score. <laughs> uh, it will be premiered in November. Oh, cool! Cool. Yeah. You, you are three pieces this month. That's uh, that is quite busy. It's busy. Yes. <laughs> uh, I would say within a month, not this month. I guess it was like mid June, mid July. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We do July first. One nice. And I've been thinking about them for a long period of time, but the actual mm. rotation. Time, yeah. Yeah. Um, the commissions themselves I've had for at least four or five months. Okay. So there was a period of getting the text, and, um, you know, sketching before mm-hmm. the commission. 
wave. <laughs> you know, wind in my way. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how how was it that um, that you got started in in conducting? Is that something that was always a thing that you wanted to pursue, or is that something that um, sort of that grew out of composing or, or an, another pursuit? That's a great question. No, I. I- I realized that I have had my microphone off to the side the entire time. I, I, <laughs> let me move that into my face. Maybe people can hear me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so I was pianist growing up mm-hmm. uh, by my mother. I joined the high school band in my sophomore year of high school. I joined the chorus the same year. Uh, and it was really through those social experiences that I learned how much I loved it. I, I was... I enjoyed playing the piano, and that was fun, but it wasn't really, you know, private musicianship was not really my way, mm-hmm. uh, to call. Um, and then through high school, I, I both conducted and composed mm. as part of my uh, sort of extracurricular activity, and that led me to pursue a composition degree. I was very much interested in that. Mm-hmm. But I was conducting all the while, I was doing that. I took something like six conducting classes in my undergraduate. Mm. Nice. Including two graduate classes that let me take as a senior, mm-hmm. an elective conducting recital. Um, so that's all during my undergraduate year. And then I went to graduate school for conducting specifically, but mm-hmm. always maintained um, activity as a composer while doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the two hats that I wear, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, have always been coexistent. Nice. Um, they, I, I don't, I can't imagine my musical life without one of them. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's something to be said about the private acts of both activity. You know, as a conductor, you have to learn the score, which is very solitary. Mm-hmm. But mostly you have to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> solitary most of the time. Uh, and then there are collaborative aspects to both as well, right? The, mm-hmm. the rehearsal process, the performance process as a conductor, the collaborative process as a composer, meeting and working with either the poets mm-hmm. or the performers. Uh, so both of those... Uh, roles feed my musical personality. My yeah. Musical. Nice. And I'm sure that, the, that each role feeds the other as well. Absolutely. And of course, the better composer I become in choral music, the better conductor I become in choral music and vice versa. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I find myself uh, kept sharp so to speak, by, by uh, honing moment. Yeah. I find that as a, as a vocalist and a composer, that mm-hmm. definitely, especially when writing writing for voice, that yeah. Those two totally feed off of each other. Um, the third hat for me is really teacher as well, and professor. Right? Yeah. While I am doing that, and during the school year, while I'm teaching and conducting, I have a hard time finding space for composing. Mm-hmm. I tend to need the solitary time in blocks that come with uh, spring break, holiday mm-hmm. break, summer break. Yeah. Myself the space for writing. I find it very hard to deal with that and the administrative. Uh, and other musical uh, goals of being a working professor. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 heard that that tends to be, or that that can easily be the case of, of during the, the school year. It can be difficult to. You look to back get. at Bernstein too, right? Like he <laughs> he found time to compose around all of his busy conductors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, been critis- critical of him saying, you know, if he had written more, we may have more works with him, but he was so busy. Yet at this mm. time, I don't think his works would be the same if he wasn't conducting, right? If he wasn't actively performing. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I've heard that argument for, for lots of different mm-hmm. composers. They, oh, if they hadn't, if they hadn't done this, uh, you know, what would, but it wouldn't be, uh, it might not be the same. It might not be as good because of their, their other pursuits. Mm-hmm. So with, uh, your ensemble's notice. Notice. Yes. Notice. Um, so, it, um, I'd like to know a little bit more about about what you do there and the sorts of sort, the sorts of rep you do and the composers you work with in that sort of a setting. Sure. So, uh, the ensemble notice uh, is the result of my rebranding of an existing ensemble. Okay. So the Indiana University Contemporary Vocal Ensemble existed since 1980. Mm. Strangely enough, you know, I had never heard of it before I came here, and I, I think. Uh, so many of the activities of the school are kept inside the school. I mm-hmm. made the point when I got here to, to look outwardly, right? And how could we take this ensemble, which is really unique in higher education, 
mm-hmm. uh, and make sure it has a focus beyond just uh, the academic walls. Yeah. And so uh, when I came in, uh, the ensemble before I had gotten here had a history of performing 20th and 21st century. Mm-hmm. So I decided pretty early on that I wanted to work mainly with music of living composers. And so Stravinsky is great, you know, but some of those works are a century old. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't necessarily going to be promoting that music as I would those of composers who were still alive or recently dead, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or still of the, of the very immediate past. Yeah. Um, while at the same time, we are an institution of learning, higher education, and I wanted to make sure we were pro- promoting both the works of students and the mm-hmm. works of faculty. Nice. When I got here, I realized that many of the composition faculty had not actually written for the chorus either many years or at all. So one of my first goals was to commission works from all of them. So that, uh, you know, I was imagining there would be a trickle-down effect as well. You know, the students would become better composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, music, faculty uh, mentors are also part of that. Um, there's one notable exception on the faculty, and that is Endavid Sandstrom. Mm-hmm well-known Swedish composer who has written hundreds of works for the chorus, some of his best works, best known are for the chorus. And so we've done some of his music every single year. Oh, nice. And, and he teaches a course here called Choral Composition. It's mm. actually very unique in, in higher ed. Most, of the, most composition programs are focused into chamber music and orchestral symphonic literature mm-hmm. to write for instruments and maybe a solo voice here and there. Yeah. Um, to have a course here that deals specifically with vocal music choral music is unique and I think uh, wonderful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And at IU, we have eight composition faculty members and about 50 compositions. Wow. So it's an enormous and <laughs> yeah. community. Uh, and many of those same composers sing in my ensemble. So Great. Uh, if they can pass the audition, of course. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's, I think, really important uh, for composer training to learn to perform in a good chorus. Mm-hmm. Speak as well as uh, learning to write for one, right? The two inform. Yeah, I think that that's that's a great that's a great learning tool. Um, I, I I do feel that ha- having always been a performer, that that's definitely informed the way that I write, not just for the voice, but for everything. It, yeah. it you become I think much more practically minded. Mm-hmm. you're thinking about what is okay if, if someone's standing on the stage in front of all these people and they have to do this thing mm-hmm. how can you facilitate how, how can you present that in the best way how can you you know looking at all, looking at all the scores that you see uh performing with the group what is what's the best mm-hmm. what are what are best practices that you've you've encountered that can really inform your own practice sure. well and you know you asked me as well uh, which composers program, right? Mm-hmm. Literature. Part of it is who I know. Mm-hmm. Like, the composers you know are part of that, especially when you're doing living as opposed to composers. Mm-hmm. Um, and also who you've heard about, who you, mm-hmm. music that I've heard that I've admired. Sometimes it's people that send me scores cold and I mm-hmm. had a chance to review the scores. They all go into a big pile when I get mm-hmm. them. Even if they send them as PDFs, I have them printed so I can see them. Nice. Uh, and then in May and June, I go through the entire pile. And I pick out yes, no, maybe so, mm-hmm. and and then from that I try and fill out a, a season's program. Nice. Uh, and the, I mean, some recent composers we had Caroline Shaw here in my second year mm. prepared uh, part of her um, partita, which won mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, prepared one movement of it for twenty-four voices acoustically rather than the eight voices of room full of teeth with microphones. Okay, uh, and that was fabulous, right? Yeah. To have living young composer here um, recently in the news for wonderful things mm-hmm. uh, and someone who I actually went to graduate school with. Oh, cool. Yeah. To work with the student. And we're lucky here. The composition department brings in excellent composers all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm on the conducting faculty. We don't really have funds to bring in guest composers most of the time, but we can work with, uh, with both departments to see how we can do things collaborative. Um, and, and, and so other composers we've done recently would be people like Ted Hearn, right, who is in USC, and he's written quite a bit of vocal music. Mm-hmm. Um, Connie Olson, uh, Michael Gilbertson, Zachary Wadsworth. 
uh, people that I know from my past. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, composers who aren't exactly of my generation, but a generation or two older. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lansing McCloskey, on Crouch, um, are ones coming up on this upcoming season. Jennifer Higgins, mm-hmm. uh, James McMillan. Uh, so I look for two things. I look either for people who have a history of writing for choral music mm-hmm. and doing it well, or I look for people that clearly, even if they're emerging composers, they don't have much music, they clearly have an understanding of the vocal instrument in the idiom. Mm-hmm. And they have something to communicate, say. It's not just music for complexity's sake, which you get a lot with, uh, with composers. Yeah. Um, it's not difficult for the sake of being difficult. Mm-hmm. to try and, you know, stretch some imaginary boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, the, the easiest thing for me when figuring out whether I should program a score or not is I sit down and I sing through the score, and if it looks like the composer has never actually sung through the parts, <laughs> I, I don't consider it for program. Mm. I could say something cheeky and say I use it for kindling, but no. I don't. <laughs> 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 a bit more respectful. <laughs> um, but yeah, you get a lot of music that that really has, has no vocal sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's key uh, in what I look for. Does it yeah. have say, can it be sung? Was it sung during its creation? Mm-hmm. Um, or was it, you know, someone sitting at the keyboard playing notes? Or was it someone listening through their headphones to MIDI? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's very obvious when, that, when, a, when a piece of music is not meant to be performed so much as heard. That yeah. To me is a, is a red flag. Yeah, totally. I've, I've uh, had the misfortune of being on the performing end of some some music that just clearly was not ever thought of as in terms of the voice um i remember i forget what it was something in in undergrad where the sopranos are just squeaking out high c's just little staccato that that as a and I, i forget what if it was a word or a syllable but just totally unforgiving in every respect. I think it was like an ooh up there. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking Why? About, I'm at an educational institution. You know, I have to care for the I call it vocal gold. Yeah. Right? It's my responsibility to also make sure I'm not wasting their time giving them an educational experience that is worthwhile. To do mm-hmm. um, and just taking a piece of music by some composer who's not considered the demands of uh, that it has on young voices mm-hmm. uh, is, is not someone that I would want to promote. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's totally. And the then will not be happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by contrast, their teachers will not be happy. All of them, you know, you want to live happily. Y- yeah. You, you don't want the, the singers resenting. No. Resenting you for your choices. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, again, responsibility. Yeah. It's different in the instrumental world. Uh, you know, the, it's not someone's body you're playing with. Mm-hmm. You're playing with something outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. You can demand certain things differently of a piece of wood, uh, yeah. little metal parts to it, right? Then you can someone's voice, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be cared for in a much different way. Um, and many composers don't think of it like that. They think of, you know, the altos as a section of violas that happen to have vowels. Mm-hmm. And that's not quite the same thing. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's... I think that this goes back to something you said earlier, like having that that specific choral writing course or or, or vocal writing course. Yes, so many of us don't have that. And I I know that when I, I mean, I've always written vocal music and I've always written choral music um, because it comes out of my own singing practice. But I know, but yeah, we, we didn't deal with that when I was in school. (laughs) I just, I just did it because I wanted to do it. Um, it's, it's a very, I I do wish that there were more education in, in that area. I think it'd be nice to have more, more courses around the country that, that address those sorts of things. Well, and I mean, for the, in the best of situations, as you said, the composing you do grows out of your practice. Mm -hmm. an orchestral musician your whole life, it makes sense. You might write something. Mm-hmm. Played in string quartet since you were four, you're probably going to write a string quartet. Yeah. This, this makes sense. Um, and the academy is different because it says, well, even though you do those things, right, we want you to be broad enough to be able to write in multiple areas. Mm-hmm. 
difference, of course, is that there's a legitimacy bias in the Academy towards chamber and orchestral music and away from vocal. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's expected that a composer will take a course in orchestration mm-hmm. with the families of the orchestra, mm-hmm. but it's not expected that they will understand the complexities of what it means to be a soprano. And then, mm-hmm. you know, what the difference is between a soprano section versus the four or five different fox yeah. voices you can have and how those things are very different. And even the definition of chorus, what is a chorus? It could be 12 singers, it could be 100 singers, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not really well understood Yeah, um, uh, across the field, I would say. Yeah, totally. I I feel like most of my works are written for around 16 to 20 voices. Mm-hmm. I, I, that, because that's the sort of choir that I've typically performed in. I've done a couple of the big ones, but I don't, I don't hear that sound right. when, I, when, I, when I compose. Um, and that's really a prescient statement that you just said, because it's really about how we hear. Mm-hmm. And a composer who's never written for the chorus doesn't understand how to hear the chorus. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't understand that if you build a crescendo in an orchestra by expanding the range, um, that that doesn't work for a chorus, right? Mm-hmm. You build a crescendo with a chorus by bringing everyone up into their upper register. Right? Yeah. Pieces, fortissimo on a low E flat is never going to be realistic. Possibly, <laughs> no. right? And someone who's never sang in a chorus or been taught that won't understand it. They'll write for the chorus like they write for the orchestra mm-hmm. and they'll have problems, right? Uh, and so it, it's really simple things. It should be taught. <laughs> it's all <laughs> history. Yeah. Not difficult, but so many people misunderstand. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it it could it could be folded into an orchestration. I mean, it is it is orchestration of a sort. And maybe maybe it is in some classes. Maybe my experience, my view of it is limited. Uh, but based on the scores I get, uh, I would mm-hmm. say that there's plenty of misinformation. Yeah, yeah. So, just lack of information. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I, I've adjudicated and looked at literally thousands of, of works by emerging composers who clearly have not written yet mm-hmm. much for the chorus. And it's just so obvious, right? It's as simple as a mistake as, you know, if you're writing for, uh, I, I don't know, a cello, and you've written an A three lines below that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you retune the strings, it's just not going to exist. Yeah. Happen, right? it, it, it's that kind of or or setting syllabically problematic things in the text like oh you set the word with the stress on the wrong syllable and it's not the piece is not about you know setting words on wrong syllables the piece is about text stress and you just misset a word or two that's mm-hmm. a problem right that's a disqualifying problem mm-hmm. looking at it when I, at least when I look I can't say that forever <laughs> That sort of uh, harkens back a little bit to um, talking about adjudicating. That brings back to all the way to episode two on this. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to listen to any of the, the show so far because we've only been talking for a little bit. Um, but uh, Jen Jolly, um, do you know Jen at all? No. Um, she has a great blog. Um, oh, what's it, what's it called? Um, Why Compose When You Can Blog. And she has a whole series of posts that are about rejection letters from competitions and she has recently been asked to be on panels for things so she's been writing about being rejected by panels for years and now she's suddenly on one um and i I think the adjudication process is is pretty interesting um so i think a lot of people don't maybe don't realize that there are these sort of disqualifying events <laughs> very very simple things that uh i know when i've con- you know i've not been in any pa- in any panels but i've you know put out calls for scores and i've uh you know had things that i've tried to promote and had you know asked people to send me stuff and there are definitely in my opinion uh, when i see things there are just I, I, this can't go to the next level at this point, what, these, what are some of those things for you? Um, quite often, it, it's it's kind of similar to what what you said earlier. Um, you know, if, if if you can't seem to stay within a, the the actual range of the instrument, mm-hmm. um, if you're and and tech setting totally that just drives me up the wall. If if you're clearly uh, shoehorning a text into um, you know, oh, I wrote this nice tune, or I have this this vo- this line that 
the text doesn't really fit, but I'm going to just make it. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Like, I had all this text, I had to get it out somehow, and I really liked this melody, so it's going on this melody. Without any mm-hmm. regard for range or uh, tessitura or things like that. Yeah. And pr- for me, presentation is a biggie. Uh, if, if it looks like you're using the Sibelius defaults or the finale defaults, and you're not tweaking things and, and trying to make it look nice, mm-hmm. not just nice, but readable, if there are collisions and things like that, that's always... I, that, that's one where I absolutely write back and say, I need you to fix this, mm. you know, very politely, but, um, <laughs> that I, you know, I, I can't get to the music. I yes, can't see the music. When a score is beautifully crafted and notated and it's following all the rules, the margins are perfectly measured. And yet the music underneath all of that doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that, you come across those scores. I, less of those than, than the other. Um, they take but, the care to make the score look that nice. They probably have something to say. Yeah, I, I feel like generally if if you understand the, the rules of engraving and, and presentation, that you've probably figured out your craft as well. Sometimes sometimes there's not a there there. Mm-hmm. there there's, there's it's okay, the, here's music and it's it doesn't say anything. It's not maybe just pretty and that's all um but i do find more often that there, there is the technique and there's the the expression the ability to to express musically what you, you know you're thinking if you have that technique to to actually present it well there mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely yeah the process of adjudication is one that uh is you have to find objective criteria mm-hmm. for, for discarding material that you could only really view objectively. Mm-hmm. This is the problem with adjudications and competitions. I know why we do them, and I know why they're important. Uh, so rather than you know, evaluating the musical idea that the composer has written over a phrase, it's much easier to say, oh, okay, look, you have collisions in your score, your margins are uneven, or your cello note is too low. Mm-hmm. I can easily, I don't have to worry about evaluating the higher things. Mm-hmm. No. Say, well, this one must not be worthy of my time because of this. And yet some of the um, great composers I know who are faculty members at other institutions, not here, mm-hmm. um, create abysmal looking scores. <laughs> yeah. Really terrible scores. And they rely on someone else to, to notate them for them to look pretty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's great, but, um, you know, I, I agree with you that there's something to be said about the way you choose to present yourself professionally mm-hmm. right? and your scores are, are a reflection of that. Um, it makes a big difference to me when I'm evaluating scores if what I'm getting from someone, uh, is put together with care. Mm-hmm. I think if they've taken the time to, uh, wrap their score in such a way, you know, rapping to uh, crude a, a term, but if they've chosen to take their musical ideas and wrap them in a package that's appealing, mm-hmm. then people are more likely to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing when I think about recordings or adjudications, right? Of course, people say, you know, we, we won't be biased by the quality of recording when evaluating your composition. Some compositions don't allow for recordings, they just want the score to be evaluated. Mm-hmm. But many compositions do have uh, competitions do have recording elements, and there's no question that there's an intrinsic bias that comes about from a better performance of any piece of music than from mm-hmm. a worse performance. Right? If you're listening yeah. to a recording and you know the violins are flat or out of tune or something like that, then that is going to have a subjective impact on how you view the piece of music. Absolutely, right. Uh, I found if you don't have a really excellent recording to send, it's better to not send any recording at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and no recording is always better in my mind than a movie of any kind. Because <laughs> 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 that's not music. I'd much rather have my musical ear and mind evaluate your score mm-hmm. than a computer's reproduction or something. Oh, the, yeah. only, the only time that I will differ in that is if I send a newly commissioned work 
uh, that I finished writing to the commissioner, mm -hmm. uh, I will send them a MIDI realization if they wish. Mm -hmm. I'll give them the option to receive it. Um, many like that or whatever, uh, but I find it <laughs> very unappealing <laughs> uh, as a composer. And, it, and if they do want a MIDI realization, then I have to go through and make sure the the, the notational process somehow deals effectively with tempi fluctuate. It's mm -hmm. really not worth the extra effort. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it is a lot of extra work to, to go from this looks right to this sounds right in MIDI. Absolutely, yeah. It, well, and it's never going to sound totally right in MIDI. You can only oh, no. approximate, you know, how you think it might possibly go one day when someone performs it. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the act of actual performance is just so much richer. And of course, with vocal music, you don't get vowel and word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you only get, you know, some law sound. I usually just default to a string sound for my... Uh, Me too. I just because it feels somehow more like music than, than the terrible vocal patches that. Yeah, I, yeah, when I'm doing a, an art song or something and I want to listen back... I, I usually change to like a clarinet or, or something, just something that is, is not that weird general MIDI. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. What else is on your list of questions? Uh, on the list of questions. Um, so it's, it seems to me that over, um, since I have become uh you know more aware of, of choral music when or, or aware of other ensembles you know when i was an undergrad i, I didn't know a, a lot of other ensembles but it seems like there has maybe been a, a kind of a, a bit of i won't say an explosion but a lot of growth in uh the the choral world in terms of wanting more new music yes it, it, um why? Why do you think? Why do you think that's been happening? And, and and I mean, it's fantastic. What What are your thoughts on on all of? I have many thoughts on this. Uh, I think the largest, most important trend in the choral field is that the genre of prestige has gone from symphonic chorus, where it was in the mid century, mm -hmm. to elite professional chamber choir. Mm -hmm. Those existed then too, but now you're seeing an explosion of them. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing new models of performance, right? You don't just have the Chanticleer model, which is now, I think, in its 38th and 39th season. You have mm -hmm. 12 fully salaried uh, people who are hired and give a full season of touring and concerts. You don't just have that. You also have the fly-in, put a concert together in a week model mm -hmm. and tour that program, which Consperare, uh, Seraphic Fire, these kinds mm -hmm. of professional ensembles do that. And these professional ensembles, which might be 13 voices or 16 or 24, uh, want repertoire for them. Mm -hmm. they, some of the old repertoire works for them, especially Baroque Renaissance repertoire works for that. But mm -hmm. largely the 19th and early 20th century repertoire was not written for that kind of ensemble. Mm -hmm. Written for uh, a large symphonic chorus or a large amateur civic chorus. Mm -hmm. Um, which would sometimes double as a symphonic chorus. That's here in the U.S. Of yeah. course, if you look across the pond at the U.K. or at Sweden, you have a long story history of small elite uh, choral ensembles. Mm -hmm. um, Sweden, of course, is probably the best known because of Eric Erikson and his chamber choir uh, and the Swedish radio choir, which he helped to found, mm -hmm. uh, and how they not only... Uh, had excellent performance by quality chamber choirs, but they also uh, sort of changed what was possible uh, with the chorus as an instrument in terms of expanding virtuosity, mm. expanding what, what new composers could write. Because there were ensembles that could do these things, suddenly the mm. repertoire there changed, right? The composer I mentioned before, Sven David Sandstrom, is famous because he grew up with those ensembles. He wrote mm. those ensembles. And so we're starting to see that happen here. In America now, we're finally getting ensembles of that same caliber. Um, it's not to say there haven't been good ones in the past 40, 50 years, mm -hmm. but now the training of people to participate in them is such that you have a pool of conductors and singers and composers who are writing regularly 
for this high level coral ensemble, professional mm-hmm. coral ensemble. Um, and strangely enough, you're seeing the very big organizations struggle to survive in a way that the smaller organizations are less, I mean, I'm going to say less worried about, but uh, they're, they're more able to keep the lights on mm-hmm. because there are just fewer uh, contingent. The, uh, what am I going to say? Room full of teeth. Right? We also yeah. An octet, which has, in the past three years, changed the way we think about vocal ensemble music. Mm-hmm. And there are composers writing for this ensemble because they are moving uh, into a technique that includes not just bel canto classical training mm-hmm. or uh, you know Lutheran school choral blend, <laughs> uh, but it, it's about bringing in singing traditions from some some of the most diverse uh, areas and cultures of the planet. And studying those techniques and working those techniques into the instruments of eight professional singers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we've moved past the day where, I hope, we're moving past the day where a singer could go to uh, a school of music or an undergraduate institution uh, and study with a voice teacher where that teacher only taught them to sing in one way mm-hmm. uh, for one situation. Right? Mm-hmm. I love opera. I see no problem with opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I think the way in which our conservatories here have developed have developed around the technique of singing in opera. Yeah. In a large room, uh, and, and the technique was built for that. And mm-hmm. nowadays, as a professional singer, that still exists. But if you really want to have a career, you need to be able to do more than just that. Yeah. Uh, and I think the proliferation of professional choral ensembles and singing opportunities has shown that. Right? That there is now a growing market or that kind of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, it, it, having gone through a, a, a vocal program, it, I've always found it frustrating, or I found, I found it, I still find it frustrating, but, but certainly then working with, you know, these other, these other singers and they could only do the one style. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm going to, I'm I'm going to learn how to beat you up with my voice, <laughs> with the the big operatic sound, and not and when there was another style that was required, there there's not the ability to to do that. It, it's not it's not taught. It's not 60, 50, 40 years ago. That would have been okay. Yeah, because uh, because the pop and classical world. So to speak, I don't like that terminology at all. But the concert yeah. music and the commercial music world, let's mm-hmm. say that, uh, were so separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays, uh, just I see so much of an influence of commercial music into concerts. Mm-hmm. I see there no longer being this um, necessarily boundary between what happens in the academy and what happens um, with popular culture. I see mm-hmm. a huge intermingling and mixing of it uh, mm-hmm. in a way that is exciting. I think for both young composers who are learning and growing up in this era of possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think also for performers who realize, well, why can't I just do this and that? Why can't I sing musical theater and belt and go and sing Little of handle or something? Why yeah. Can't I do that? yeah. Uh, there is no reason why I can't. That's, that's what, what I think today's student is realizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's, that can only benefit everyone. I think so. Um, it's an inclusive uh, way of viewing the musical field. And I think it's in large part because of the internet. Honestly, that mm-hmm. we see it not just in music, we see it in all sorts of um, in, in changing attitudes towards acceptance of different people and different beliefs and value systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it because now we have access to very quickly and easily raw material from other cultures. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you're depending on someone else to translate for you what a, what a, I don't know, a Hungarian folk song in 1940 may, may have sounded like. <laughs> well, actually, go and listen yourself to what that recording is, and you can have an informed opinion about it. That's not to say that people actually do that. Right? <laughs> people just sort of uh, do only the barest minimum research to learn about something. That's, mm-hmm. that's been the other edge of the sword, I think, of the internet, is that information is so widely available that mm-hmm. we no longer understand how to sift through it in a in a matter that is helpful for discourse and dialogue. Yeah. Um, composers, too, I think, are guilty 
because they go immediately to those things that are most extreme and say, this is the norm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's something <laughs> to study and to know about, but it's not necessarily where you have to go. The thing that I hate most uh, about composers, and I see this all the time in student composers, um, but also in composers who have been composing for decades, is what I call self-conscious composition. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the idea that one has to write a piece of music that they feel other people will judge to be good. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like even when I was a student, there was pressure to, how am I going to write something that other people will find acceptable? Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing more poisonous uh, to a compositional mindset than that. I think it's much more important to write music I wish here. Yeah. Intrinsically, me, mm-hmm. as, as the creator of art, if if I've not written something that I want to write, mm-hmm. I've something that is influenced by my life and my likes and my desires and my wants and interests and aesthetics, then I'm somehow not being true to myself as an artist. Right? So it's no longer about writing something that fits into a mold that some other people are dictating. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the pressure one feels in school. Yeah. Uh, more about writing something that is reflective of one's own experiences, personality, mm-hmm. uh, life. That to me is is where I come from as artist. And uh, more and more, I find if the music I write doesn't communicate that about me, if it doesn't make people feel something, if it doesn't communicate something that I believe, mm-hmm. then it's not my music. Yeah. Or yeah, I, that sort of reminds me of a fairly famous uh, thing that Ned Roram has said, that I write music that I want to hear. Yeah. It, it's, yes. Which I think, oh. amen. <laughs> yes, yeah. like write, write the thing that, that, you, that you need. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about, uh, when you say, self-conscious composition, do you mean writing something that could... that they think will win competitions? Do you think it's writing something that they, th- they think their, their teachers want them to write or some, or even something that they think the, an audience might want? Is it all of that? Some of that? That's a great question. I think it, there's certainly a dance one does when one is composing, mm-hmm. especially on commission. When mm-hmm. you're composing for someone, there's, or for an organization, for an ensemble, you are writing within the boundaries of that particular ensemble, whatever mm-hmm. the Absolutely. Set those up in the conversation you have with the person positioning you, like, tell me what you're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. And then how can I leaven my musicality into your expectation, mm-hmm. right? This is the dance. Yeah. The composer. Um, and some composers don't care about that. They write whatever the hell they want, mm-hmm. regardless of... <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it has to be some your artistic statement of themselves. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's fine. Um, and so, no, I, I, I think that's different than what I call a self-conscious writing. Okay. I think acknowledging the realities of your situation mm-hmm. and the people you are writing for is just part of being a good composer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because if you're going to write something with a low base C for a children's choir, mm-hmm. probably, you probably don't understand what's going on. Right? Yeah. And, and that. That there's a point at which the argument becomes ridiculous. But no, self-conscious is more about, in my mind, this desire that others, or not desire, the, the feeling that others will judge you based on what you write. Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to. Yeah. All the time. That's just part of the world. But I worry that if, my, if what I write is influenced by those voices, mm-hmm. those, you know, the uh, potential impact of those voices, then it becomes crippling and paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you get a, a jaundiced piece of music that is yeah. instead based upon what you think other people's views are, mm-hmm. instead of what you think yours are. Yeah, and I, I consider that different from what it's like to uh, write within the confines of the limitations of a composition. Right? It's it's like tailoring a suit. Mm-hmm. Right? If you get a or a dress, if you get a couture, a bespoke fabric, right, mm-hmm. or a, you know, garment, it's going to be made tailor fit for you like mm-hmm. a glove right and so when you're commissioning a piece of music from someone it should also fit like a glove, right? mm-hmm. it should also be you should as the person commissioning the work 
have no worry that the work you're going to get is going to be anything but perfect mm-hmm. for your group, whatever. Mm-hmm. Ideal. Now, we know that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all the time. Uh, but but in my mind, that's what I strive for. Right? Yeah. If I write this work for the University of Michigan Men's Glee Club, mm-hmm. in my mind, what I've written for them uh, will be perfectly suited right? mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. what their desires are, what their ranges are, their voices, who they are, what they believe. That is all part of it. Yeah. Um, and if that connects to who I am and what I believe and what I want to express musically, mm-hmm. that's a winning combination. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think we may there may have been a I think you might have misheard either I misspoke or 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 you may have misheard a, a word of mine. Um, I I because um, I think I think one of the things I I, I said was was I think maybe it, t- to your point and and you may have been misheard. Um, writing to writing to win competitions. I think you might have heard commissions. Yeah, writing, writing to to win a competition or to win an award is that what you mean by by self self conscious? No, no. I, I just forgot about that part. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, no, I think writing to win competitions. Well, that's a good. I, I never really thought of it quite like this, but in that instance, you're writing a piece of music for not for people. Mm-hmm. You're writing it for for a panel. For a pan- yeah, for not for performers, I should say. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're writing a piece of music for performers, which will then submit to a competition, that's a different mm-hmm. story. Yeah, that's that's you're different. Writing a piece of music simply because you have to write a piece of music for this genre or this mm-hmm. that that feels inauthentic. Yeah, I I had um in sort of er- early in in some of my my studies, I I remember getting pressure from a few quarters to to write a piece like this you know to write a, a, a you know th- this is the instrumentation and this is what the piece should do uh, and this is the piece that you then submit to all of these competitions because it, it ticks all uh, ticks all the boxes mm-hmm. I did it and it's never been performed <laughs> and and I, I, I think that might be a bit of 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 part of what that is, and I think that I think that happens more than than just to me. Uh, the, this this push to to you, you have you you should you should go after these awards. You should go after these these prizes, mm-hmm. and so you should. Quartet in your portfolio. Where is the orchestral piece in your portfolio? Right? Yeah, use if you're to be a real composer. Exactly. No one ever says where's your portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, you're right. Right. If you want to. The, the compositional uh, prestige factory, mm-hmm. imaginary place with imaginary elite people granting mm-hmm. like commissions and awards. <laughs> uh, obviously, this doesn't exist, but uh, there's certainly uh, a a a single. Uh, ideal composer uh, relic, mm-hmm. like, right? Which, which is put up as like the, the path to be a great composer. Mm-hmm. And that person will win a Charles Ives award and will win a young composer award with this. And eventually we'll get commissions from major symphonies. And, you know, that's what it means to be a composer. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you do those things. You follow those paths. Uh, and I resent that. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, because I don't feel that's true. I, I feel yeah. like there are composers that are uh, doing other things that don't necessarily follow those paths that are as legitimate and as interesting, um, more interesting in many cases, than trying to be that you know custom-made composer. Uh, the, hmm, what was I going to say? Why do I resent it? Uh, because I don't belong in any of those things, right? Mm-hmm. I don't exist really in a composer world. Um, mm-hmm. Because I I straddle this line between what is the choral musical education community and what mm-hmm. is the music composer community, right? And those two communities value different things mm-hmm. in general. 
from the people that uh, have uh, that sort of manage the gateways to those areas value differently. Yeah. Um, so I, I've made it my point to try and not fall too much in either camp. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be writing music to such a degree that it's considered schlock mm-hmm. by a publisher that um, creates pieces every year just for the sake of selling them and then they go away. I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. Um, but I want to find the best of that world and participate in it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be over here in the composer world with people who are just writing things for their own self-aggrandizement mm-hmm. um, and for their own um, egos mm-hmm. uh, either. And I don't want to write things just for the sake of being complex, which I see so much happening. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So I, I, But I want to take the best of both of those worlds and work them into my own writing. Yes, I have something I can learn from this. Yes, I have something I can learn from that. I can learn something about complexity from this world. I can learn something about accessibility from that world. Mm-hmm. Find a way to marry them um, somehow to create works that I find have the best of both worlds mm-hmm. uh, without being um, without being excluded from either world. Yeah, um, and and that appeal to your musical sensibilities that that are that it becomes genuine to you um when i another undergrad thing i i'd written a a a multi-movement choral thing in in undergrad and it was it had been commissioned and i was just bringing it into my professors to uh during my lessons and at one point my my composition professor said it's too beautiful And, and you know, knowing her music, she write she wrote very angular, not accessible, not pretty music, and that's what she was after. And my next teacher, another piece, was saying, um, "You need to make this more difficult. Mm-hmm. Like very, very simply, you need to like add complexity to this piece. Why? To make it more difficult." <laughs> I, I, th- there, to me, there's no point in th- that complexity for complexity's sake. Yeah, I understand it as an exercise, right? Yeah, right. Certainly, you should be able to be pushed uh, to consider possibilities beyond just your immediate understanding. Of, yeah, right. If you've only ever written major chords in your life, supposedly maybe it's important that you consider, you know. Mm-hmm. A minor chord. Yeah. <laughs> not a chord at all. Maybe you only write things with one note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Maybe this piece has only A's in it. Right? It's important <laughs> to understand what those limitations are. Yeah. The school is the right place to learn them. Absolutely. But it's recognizing that those are uh, that those are teaching you where the boundaries are so that when you graduate, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. And this is perspective. And, you know, I struggle with this in teaching any student. It doesn't have to be a composer. Right, you can't force them to understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you have to trust that you've given them information, and they must live with it and digest it and learn and use it. Mm-hmm. And they will not have um, mastered all lessons before they leave. No, only the rarest student uh, does that, um, and really the rarest uh, mm-hmm. one or two in your lifetime will be that kind of student. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, I empathize with what it means to teach composition because you're trying to expand their ear, mm-hmm. trying to expand, uh, their understanding of sound and the musical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and inevitably in doing that, you push them towards considering possibilities in music they hadn't yet considered. Absolutely. Right. Get in a candy store you start to taste chocolate for the first time. You're going to try all the chocolates in the world. Right. Oh, <laughs> That one, oh my gosh, marzipan, why not? <laughs> and and then yet, there's a point at which you become sick <laughs> from all the sugar you've eaten. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you realize that this is not a healthy way to continue, right? Eating chocolate for every meal for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, many composers, they graduate and they continue eating chocolate forever. They, they're on a diet of sugar. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in the sense that, you know, pretty beautiful music. Is yeah, like, yeah. Right, although that's another symptom of the same movie. Yeah. Uh, but, but I do think it's uh, imperative upon any artist to recognize that, that we belong in this ecosystem that 
has uh, limitations and people and I'll, I don't know. I'm rambling, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I guess I just want to say that I I know how difficult it is to get them to to both expand their horizons and know what the limits of those things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both are important things. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, to to give them the tools and to give them the the experience of a variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tools is the right thing because you teach them to make a fire and they might set themselves on fire. And mm-hmm. you have to be okay as a teacher with the possibility possibility that they might do that. Yeah. And that's where it's so hard because you can't can't constrict and force and say this is the way you will learn. That's not mm-hmm. how it works. You have to allow a degree of freedom and risk and the chance for them to fail. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then then you miss uh, the chance to fail. Yeah, when I was when I studied with uh, with Darren Hagen, he always talked about the tools in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. And you know, working on a piece with him, he would say, "All right, why don't what if you tried?" And he would do some little Sibelius magic and and change an idea that I had, and he'd tell me, "All right, this here I've done." This. This is what this 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 is what I call this little technique. Now you have this tool in your toolbox, mm-hmm. and I, I always appreciated that. And he would send me home with you know with, with re- recordings and say, "This is outside of the you know what you do right now, but I want you to hear it. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know that this exists to to expand you." Uh, That's critical. Yeah, absolutely. No, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, when every single composer that comes through your studio suddenly thinks they have to be the next living. Yeah. <laughs> they're not all going to be the next living. They no. Should, right? Yeah. Uh, not unless they're wired that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and then they don't understand why publishers don't want to publish any of their music. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, this, this is... Uh, it's, it's something I'm always thinking about. It's something I'm continuing to wrestle with. How, yeah. How do we best prepare composers for what the real world is actually like? Yeah. When they realize that no one is going to come begging them and suddenly write the most complex cello style they've ever written. No mm. one can ask them for that. Unless they know a cellist who is mm-hmm. really interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes uh, also with, you know, you said publishers don't want to publish this thing. I think, and this will we'll bring it, since we're coming up on the hour here, I'll, I'll, I'll pivot this around. Sometimes you don't know you don't. You, they haven't done the research to know what the publisher does, what type of music they publish, the sort of thing that they're looking for. And I think that also, um, and this is going to lead me into my, my last big question that might send us off on a little extra tangent, and I'm fine with that. Um, don't know with an ensemble what's appropriate to send. Ah. And I think, I think maybe... Um, I think one of the, the, the things that, I, well, not I think, I know, the, 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 the thing that I kind of want to wrap up with is um, with composers sending, as, as, a, as a, someone who, who champions new music and who, who sees new scores uh, quite frequently, what in, in your opinion and your experience is the, like, the best way or what are, the, what are good ways to approach an ensemble or approach a conductor with new works and what are things that you just should not ever do that you have seen? <laughs> I always... Great question. Um, I love getting new scores. I love when a composer will send me new music. I love considering it in my own time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love uh, going through a score and thinking, oh, this is great. I love going through a score and thinking, hey, this is not right for me right now. Mm-hmm. I love going through a score and thinking, this will never be right for my ensemble. Mm-hmm. Why did, here's something I don't like. Why would a composer send me a piece for children's chorus mm-hmm. when I don't conduct a children's Yes. Why would, I mean, uh, male or female chorus is different, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's clearly a piece for 16-year-olds mm-hmm. and I don't conduct that kind of ensemble, why would they take the time to send it? Mm-hmm. I expect a composer to have done the base minimum amount of research to understand what I do and what mm-hmm. music might appeal to me. And I try and make it as easy as possible. I have a repertoire list on the Notice website of all the works we've done in the past five years. Mm-hmm. The works I have programmed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't appreciate 
when a composer reaches out to me more than twice asking about the same score if I've looked at it yet. Yeah. Right? Because then I may be forced to send a rejection I'm not ready to send yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that I mean, if they send me a score, let's say in November, and I say, thank you, I look forward to reviewing this in May or June. Mm-hmm. Then I go back and I review it in May or June, and I decide I'm not going to program it. Mm-hmm. I am not going to go back to every single one of those hundred composers and write them saying I'm not programming for music. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard from you, you should just assume I'm not programming for music. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not programming it, I will contact What's worse is when they send something and then they're like, well, have you programmed it yet? When do you think you will program it? Uh, right? When it becomes this sort of pressure-filled... Yeah, uh, you, you, I know you will. I well, know you'll yeah. program it. Well, if it's not right for this concert, what about the next one? Mm-hmm. Then I write back and I have to say, I'm so sorry, I don't think I'll be programming music at all. And yeah, yeah. I really don't like to do that. But, yeah. But I... I don't know, maybe I'm an East Coaster by birth, but maybe being in the Midwest has forced me to, you know, not want to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Recognize the, the signal that if you haven't heard back in two years, it's probably because I chose enough performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it could be because it just wasn't the right work at the right time, or it could have been because I had a work like it already, or it could have been because it had a tenor solo that I didn't have the right tenor for. Could have mm-hmm. been. A- um, and if someone really wants to know why, they can write and ask. But, yeah. um, but I, I don't like to give more rejection to composers than I have to. Yeah. With enough rejection as it is. Um, but, uh, I mean, the better thing to do uh, is to become engaged in the choral community, to mm-hmm. go to a choral conference as a composer and to promote your work there. Mm-hmm. Is to get involved with a composer collective who specializes in this kind of thing and become part of their networks so that when they're marketing uh, all of their composers, they're marketing you. I think that's the best way to do it because then you get on many conductors' radars. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for music who will look to these other organizations or collectives for resources. I think of Graphite Music Publishing. I think mm-hmm. Music Spoke. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, uh, they were just on uh, yeah. like uh, an hour ago, two hours yeah. ago, and uh, they're actually airing a week after you. <laughs> oh. so did, it, did it out of order people uh but yeah i i think become parts of these join with other composers who are looking to do the same things figure out whose composers you like whose music you like mm-hmm. figure out where they are getting published or who's performing them and then mm-hmm. or if you have a conductor who has performed your work have that conductor write to another conductor whose ensemble you think might enjoy performing that work mm-hmm. the, the ways conductors program are because they've heard a work they like and they want to program it mm-hmm. they've gotten a recommendation from a friend they trust mm-hmm. right they have a personal relationship with a composer they trust mm-hmm. or like or they've slept with <laughs> uh, that, that's how this works usually mm-hmm. is, is that uh, there are physical human connections between people yeah. that's how music gets programmed better much much better than a cold drop of a score yeah do so. I review them and do I find scores that way absolutely mm-hmm. um but that's not nearly as effective as trying to develop a relationship with someone yeah, because of other contacts you may have. And I will certainly, uh, if, if a conductor who I've trusted or a composer who I've trusted and worked with recommends someone to me, mm-hmm. they will certainly be looked at a little more closely than someone who's coming out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I heard a conductor say um, that she prefers, not that a composer just email her scores mm-hmm. but to email her like if, if, this, if this is a cold thing mm-hmm. to email and say hi i you know i've listened to recordings of your ensemble i think it's really great i have some pieces that i think i'm that that might suit your ensemble may i send you some perusal scores mm-hmm. i she she pref- and and it was on a panel and everybody on the panel like their heads were going up and down that that they prefer that you ask mm-hmm. per- permission to send something rather than hi i have stuff here it is so i've answered your question basically about how i receive scores as a conductor mm-hmm. how i send scores as a composer very different oh yeah uh, because i will go to conferences and i will make a list during the conference of the people i've talked to who mm-hmm. in my music and specifically what kind of music they're interested in and then mm-hmm. when i get home the following week i will write every single one of those people mm-hmm 
and I will send them the kind of thing that, that they said they would be interested in or I think they might be interested in with links to recordings mm-hmm. or uh, and that has been extremely effective. And then of yeah. course I I don't really self-publish. I publish with nine different publishers. Okay. So my music is being marketed by them too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I I don't like to be a, a one-stop shop in that regard. I'd much rather outsource the kinds of things I don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, marketing, publicity, printing to other people to do, to do mm-hmm. much better than me. Uh, and then I can worry about building relationships and making my first contact. Um, so just today I had someone write me saying they want to perform a score that I posted a video about. Mm-hmm. The score is in the process of being published. I approved the first proof the other day, made corrections. Nice. Uh, and he said, I'd like to perform in October. Do you think I can get a score by August 24th? So I forwarded that to the publisher and the publisher said, uh, we can make that happen. Right? Nice. We'll make sure it's ready and printed and we'll send it to him by that date so he has a first first rehearsal. That's nice. great. I don't have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> someone else is thinking about that for me. Uh, that's ideal in my mind. I know many composers are, they say, I want the higher royalty rate. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm i not concerned about the higher royalty rate. I'm happy to take whatever it is usable mm-hmm. for anything because I would much rather uh, have the publishers working for me and marketing who I am in my music. Mm-hmm. And from that, my money is not coming mainly from royalties, but mainly from commission. Mm-hmm. And so... The more my music is out there, the more people are likely to commission me, the more money I'm making, the more music. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is a, is a self-reinforcing um, move. Yeah. The yeah. more I do that, the more it happens. Right? That's why I have six pieces to write. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that continues for the foreseeable future. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> nice. What's that? are we doing on time? Uh, we're good. We're, we're just over an hour. So I think, uh, and I think we've hit all the, the points that I wanted to hit today. Uh, so, so thank you so much for, for, for being here. Um, where can people find you online and, and hear and see what you do? Yeah. My website, personal website, dominicdiorio.com, D-O-M-I-N-I-C-K-D-I-O-R-I-O. Uh, or you can just search for Diorio Indiana. I'll probably come up. And you can find things in the Indiana University web page. Um, or YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. Dom Diorio, D-O-M-D-I-O-R-O. Lots of things. Nice. And, and, and what's, the, uh, what's the Notice website? You said they have, they have one? Yeah, the Notice one is on the Indiana web page. Okay. Uh, and if you go to music.indiana.edu, you can find uh, links to the ensemble web pages there in the choral department and find me through that, as well as the ensemble. We have uh, postings of... Uh, concert programs we've done, we have recordings, we have uh, our Young Composer competition, which is for students specifically at IU, um, things like that. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for being on the show today. Stick around. Uh, we'll talk again in the green room. Uh, so everybody, thank you for, for for listening or or for watching. I know we had at least one live viewer today. Hooray! Um, and I'll have uh, links to Dominic and uh, to Notice and to a few other things along with uh, show notes at musicpublishingpodcast.com. And this will be episode number 10. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.